So first John chapter two, starting in verse one, and we'll read down to verse eleven. And hopefully we get past there. But let's see. My little children, these things I write to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. But by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded, blinded his eyes. So we must remember, whenever we're jumping into the, the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he's specifically addressing uh, issues within the church. And the issue specifically in 1st John he's talking about is uh, uh, believing a false teaching. Uh, here it's, it's Gnosticism. Or um, even further, further than that, it's a, it's a doctrine called Corinthism or Corinthianism. And uh, Corinthus, we talked about this a few weeks ago when I taught last, was a man who came in and taught a heresy, specifically that Jesus was not uh, Christ, God incarnate, but instead he was a man who the Spirit of Christ inhabited. And that happened at the baptism of Jesus. And then the, the Spirit of Christ left him at the crucifixion. It's obviously a false teaching. It's something that, that there are churches teaching today, that same exact doctrine. It's a false doctrine. Here, he's speaking of the fellowship that the children of God should have. And it's awesome because in chapter 2, verse 1, he starts out by calling them my little children. And, and if you notice, within the writings of John, John being the apostle of love, he does something pretty amazing. He creates relationship with his readers. He, he calls to them as his little children. John being the oldest living apostle, uh, the last living apostle. I'm sorry, there is no other apostles at this time. John's writing to the church as almost like a father. Not as in the Catholic church sees uh, a priest, but his, his desire for the children of God to reach for the kingdom of God is that of a father and his children. And he's writing to them saying, my little children, you young ones, 
This is my desire for you. This is why I wrote these things. What are the things that he wrote? What are the things that he is speaking of? Well, in verse 9 and 10 of chapter 1, it says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, God, Jesus, and his word is not in us. He's writing to us and to the the church in um, Asia Minor, the whole area specifically, to tell them that we can have our sins forgiven, that we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Then he continues by saying, these things I've written to you so that you may not sin. A life of purity, a life of, of sinlessness is what he's called us to. Now, that doesn't mean that we could fulfill that because he continues that, that sentence by saying, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate, right? So here's, here's the out. Here's the just in case. But what our desire as children of God should be is, is purity. It's not liberality. It's purity. It's funny. Something that the Lord's been speaking to me all day about, and actually it started yesterday, um, is the power in purity. It actually probably started before that because I'm teaching through Acts chapter 5 and 6 right now where we see Ananias and Sapphira lying about the amount of money that they received for their property and laying it at the feet of the, the apostles saying they're laying all of their money, the price of their entire property at their feet and they're lying to gain some sort of name or advantage for themselves in the early church. And we see the Lord put them to death. And then we see this power come from the church that we didn't see previous to that. The power of purity and the work of the Holy Spirit is amazing. And it's funny, as I examine my life, as I examine my ministry over the 12 years that I've been in ministry, I see that the more purity there is in my life, the more power there is in the preaching that comes from my mouth. the more capability I have to stand on the Jesus Christ that I'm, I'm proclaiming. Because I know him intimately. I walk with him daily. Something that I've been struggling with, and I'm just going to be completely open with you tonight, something I've been struggling with lately is watching um, certain comedians, and they're political comedians, and some of, most of the stuff that they're saying is true politically, but a lot of what they're doing in their show to be funny is vulgar is is outright disgusting it's not pornographic or anything like that but i see it in my mind becomes unpure because of this and something that the lord's been speaking to me directly about even today as i was at work listening to my earphones doing work i had the comedian on for about 5 minutes and went wow this is so not pure. This is so uh, detrimental to the health of my mind. What am I putting into my head? These things I write to you so that you may not sin. The idea is that you may not continue in sin. Why? Because sin creates separation between you and Jesus Christ. 
Sin creates a, a chasm between you and the Savior that you worship. Not because he goes anywhere, but because it makes you stray away. It creates a void between you and him. On your side, not on Jesus' side. And I always thought, when I was younger, as a, a young man in ministry, Lord, why, why is there no power behind the ministry that you put into my life, the calling that you put into my life? And the whole time God was calling to me, oh, any purity. You need to leave these things. The beautiful thing is, in my life, the Lord spoke very clear to me, don't worry, I'll show you. I'll show you these things that you need to reject, these things that you need to remove. So, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we, had, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And the word advocate there is the parakletos. It's pretty amazing. I thought the Holy Spirit was the one that comes alongside. That's what parakletos means. Yes, true. The Holy Spirit is. But here, this is telling us that Jesus is also the one that comes along our side. It's pretty amazing how we see the Trinity, the triune God, come together, work for the benefit of those who he loves, the children of God, right? These things I write to you that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have someone to come alongside. And then it says that we have it, that Parakletos is with the Father, and it's Jesus Christ, the righteous. The one without sin. The one with full purity. The one that has right standing before God. He's the one that is our one that comes alongside. The one that argues our case in court, so to say. See, we need to have the desire to live sinlessly. At the same time, understand we have an advocate sitting at the right hand of the Father and, and defending us. It's a pretty amazing thing. Verse 2, and he himself is our propitiation for, for our sins. Is the propitiation for our sins. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Last time I taught on this, I spoke a little bit about this. And what does it mean that he's our propitiation? It's not a word that we commonly use today in our, uh, you know, our American language. Propitiation. Well, it comes from Leviticus chapter 16. And we don't need to read it, but you can if you want later. What it comes down to is, in the law, it gave place for a sin offering, a goat, and a scapegoat. Okay, And what would happen was, the priest would take the goat, and one of the goats, and he would take that goat and he would cut it up in pieces and sacrifice it to the Lord. And he would take the sins of all the people of Israel and he would lay them, so to say, on the head of the scapegoat, pray to the Lord for forgiveness, and allow that goat to run off. Okay? The propitiation. The blood offering, the covering of, of the sacrifice, as well as the scapegoat, the one that takes the sin of, of the nation. That's where the idea comes from. 
Jesus is our scapegoat and our sacrifice. It's pretty beautiful, I mean, if you think about that. Jesus Christ took all of our sin upon his shoulders on Calvary's cross and removed our sin completely. This is the one that sits at the right hand, the the seat of judgment of God, the one that defends our case, our witness. What a beautiful setup God has created for us. I mean, think about this. God is the one that before time, before creation, said this is how this is going to work for the people who choose to follow me. I'm going to go through all of these things for them. And he himself is a pro- the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but also for the whole world. And notice that. There are groups within the church that, that literally teach that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, the, the burial, the resurrection, was only sufficient for a specific amount of people. That God loves all people, but the, the sacrifice of Jesus was only for a specific amount. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture is very clear that Jesus Christ died for the sins of all men. And to receive the forgiveness of sins, all you have to do is simply ask Him to be your Savior and follow after Him. It's that simple. First Peter tells us that, that God's not willing that any shall perish, but that all shall come to repentance. That's his desire. You want to know the will of God. God's not willing that any shall perish, but that all come to repentance. That's his desire for all humanity. Jesus died for the sins of all mankind. Now we all have a choice. Do we follow him or do we not? Do we follow our own desires, our own ideas, or or do we follow Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? Many people on this earth want to claim Jesus as Savior. I can tell you a large portion of that does not want to claim Jesus as Lord. Verse 3. Now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So wait a second. Are you telling me that we have to keep all of the law in order to show that we follow Jesus? Well, Jesus said that the whole law is contained in two things. To love God with all that you have, with all that you are, and to love your neighbor as yourself. These are the commandments that Jesus has called us to follow. Do you truly love God with all that you have and all that you are? Has he become the reason for your being? The reason for your life? Or is he just a subcategory, a subsection of of your ideas, your, your, your mind? Something that you go to once or twice a week? Has Jesus become the reason for life. To love God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, or your soul. And the second command that Jesus has called us to, and there are several others, but but everything else is contained in these two, 
to love your neighbor as yourself. What a difficult thing. It's easy in theory. It's a very easy thing to, to, to say, yeah, I, I could love my neighbor as myself. But the truth is, is when we're hungry, I mean really hungry, not like American hungry, but when we're hungry, we haven't eaten for a couple days, we're famished, or we're thirsty, we just ran a mile, we need water. How do we think of ourselves? There's nothing to stop us. Give me water. Give me food. I'm free. My hands feel like they're going to fall off. Give me clothes. We'll fight for it. We'll, we'll bite and claw and dig and whatever we need to do to get our hands warm, right? It just, what pops in my head when I think of that is uh, me and Josh, Mary, and we're working with a couple of guys up in Trescott, Maine, all the way through the winter, not this winter, but the last winter. And I just remember a couple of days be well below zero, snowing, and me just being soaked in the snow on the side of a cliff in, in you know, one of the most northeastern portions of Maine, feeling like I'm going to die, going, let's just get back in the truck. I don't I don't care about work right now. You don't have to pay me today. Just let me go back to the hotel. I'm dying. I'm so cold. Think about this. Is that how we view other people? Like, do we love others that way? They have needs. Do we care about their needs the same way we care about our own? Do we think about other people in our actions? Or our actions simply based upon how we feel, how we think, what matters to us, what message we're trying to convey. We're told to esteem others higher than ourselves in Scripture. That means to, to see the importance of others higher than, than us. Do we do that? Is that something that, that is a practice in our lives? Or is what I want, what I need, what I think is right, what I, what I want to do right now, is that the most important thing? Because guys, I could tell you in our culture, loving others as we love ourselves, or even more than that, loving us the way that Jesus Christ loved us, or loving others the way that Jesus Christ loved us, that's not something that we see. In our culture today, that's a that's a farce. That's not even something that's respected. I was speaking to a woman today at work, and she literally said to me, Well, if I don't talk if I don't take care of myself, who will? That's sad. Is that what the church looks like? If I don't take care of myself, who will? It's not about that. You know, we're called to take care of each other. And the beautiful thing that comes with that, if we're truly taking care of one another, is if I'm taking care of your needs and caring about your needs over my own, and you're caring about my needs and taking care of me over your own, it becomes this beautiful picture of love, this beautiful picture of unity, this thing that we see 
in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, them taking care of the needs of each other, so to say. Obviously, God doesn't have needs in that way. But Jesus, in his ministry, not pointing to himself at all, but pointing to the Father, saying, worship the Father. The Holy Spirit, not pointing to himself, but the whole time, saying, worship Jesus. Pretty amazing. This picture of unity that we're supposed to have. Is that truly something that defines us? It says here, in verse 3 again, it says, Now we know, now by this we know that we know Him, that we know Jesus, if we keep these commandments. You want to know that you know Jesus? Esteem others higher than yourself and love God with all that you have. Can I have assurance of salvation? Absolutely. How? Do you, do you desire to esteem others above yourself and love God with all that you have? Yeah. You have salvation, 100%. Amen. Exciting. But I don't, I don't want to esteem others higher than I esteem myself. Well, then you should question your relationship with the Lord, and you should fix it. You should get right with God. Because we're called to be like Jesus Christ. We're called to be like Jesus. That is what Christian simply means. Follower of Jesus. Little Christ. Jesus esteemed all of us way higher than he esteemed himself. Over 2,000 years ago now. Died for us. Verse 4. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him, and by this we know that we are in him. The love of Christ is perfected in us if we simply follow his two commandments. Does that mean we're perfect in these things? No. But when God looks down upon us, and he sees us loving him with all that we possibly could give and loving our neighbor as ourselves, what he sees as perfected love because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because of the grace that God has given us through his son. Verse 6, He who says he abides in him ought himself also walk just as Jesus walked, as he walked. How did Jesus walk? You know, it's kind of it's sad when we examine the church today. This isn't a message that the church is given very often now. The message of Christ is a, a life of, of sacrifice. A life of servitude, a life of caring about others. How did Jesus walk? He walked in sacrifice. He sacrificed his time. He sacrificed his relationships. He sacrificed his preeminence. His, he, he sacrificed his name. All for what? For the love of you and you and me. 
for the love of all people, for the, the love of, of the people in this world, for the whole world, according to um, verse 2. Verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Verse 8, again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So you say that, that you're in the light, that you're walking with Jesus, that you're living a life that is directed towards heaven, that you spend time with Jesus, that you, you know him personally, yet you have hatred in your heart for your brother or your sister. It says that you're still in darkness. You see, it's funny, as we examine the life of sacrifice in Jesus Christ, there is no hatred. We see him hanging on the cross. Blood pouring out of all kinds of places on his body. In immense pain. With a broken heart. Holes in his hands. And what he says about the men doing it to him is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Turn to Stephen, the first martyr in the church. As he's preaching one of the most beautiful gospel messages ever given. A message that impacts the Apostle Paul through his whole ministry. We could see Stephen's preaching throughout Paul's writings all through his epistles. Stephen's standing there being stoned to death. Large rocks being hurled at him. And what he's saying is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I can tell you that personally in my life, I've dealt with being hurt by people in the church, by brothers and sisters. And my natural inclination is to just write them off. To want nothing to do with them. To separate myself from them. To hate them. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Hatred is the absence of love. I want them away from me. I don't want anything to do with them. But something that Jesus Christ makes very clear is that we should have nothing to do with that. If we hate our brother, our sister, we don't walk in the light. Because Jesus Christ died for our sins. He forgave, he forgave every single thing that we've ever done to him. He forgave every <laughs> sin that placed him on that cross. That's a difficult one. Forgiveness. 
says here that darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness until now. Verse 10, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. And again, what is true love? Jesus said that no greater love than, does any man have than this, to sacrifice one's life for another. Jesus proved that by his death on the cross. So there's many of us in this room, outside of this room, many Christians in this world that would say, oh, I would sacrifice my life for Christians, no doubt. I would go get a gun and fight in a war for, for Jesus, no doubt. And I'm glad there's a lot of Christians that feel that. But my question is, are you willing to sacrifice your life in the way that it's not about you? Like, let's get real. Many of us, especially in America today, are not going to have to defend our faith physically. But what happens when you have to give up your rights for a Christian? What happens when you have to give up your your capability of speaking for a Christian? What happens when someone you love is someone that you have to bow down to, so to say? Not not worship, but 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 shrink away from sit like like put them above yourself sacrifice yourself in the way that it's not about you in the conversation you now need to listen to them that's a lot harder i could tell you from a christian standpoint to say no right now it's not about me it's about you let me hear what's going on in your life let me let me hear what's going on in your mind tell me what the lord's speaking to you about I can tell you from my perspective, so often I enter conversations waiting to hear for trigger words so that I can say something else back. The whole time, my conversations, you say this, oh, well, why say this? You tell me this story, well, here, here's a story just like it, but a little bit better. Oh, yeah, your story's a little bit better? Let me tell you my story that's a little bit better. And it's these weird, secular conversations. What if it's not about that? What if we are called to love people where they're at, to truly listen to people, to care about their thoughts, to care about their feelings, to care about what's going on in their mind, in their lives? What if sacrificing your life has a lot more to do with sacrificing your time rather than sacrificing your physical body? Well, I had a plan to do this thing today. But my, my brother or sister needs to move. I took this time off of work to, to go and, and spend with my wife. Well, that's a that's a mighty noble thing. But my brother and sister needs help putting a wall up in their house. What if sacrificing something that's special to you is really what the Lord's asking you to do? Then it becomes real. Then it becomes hard. Well, that belongs to me. What if it's what if it's your money? 
What if the Lord's asking you to sacrifice some of your money? And again, I'm not going to give some crazy message about how you have to give everything you have. That's not what I'm talking about. But what if the Lord's saying, hey, I know I, I just gave you this blessing of this money, and now I want you to go give it to this person because they need it more than you. That's scary stuff. That's when this becomes real. If you love people, if, if you love your brother, you are in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him, in you. You're not causing others to stumble. You're causing people to be directed towards Jesus, to fall more and more in love with him. Is that what your life is defined by? Like, I just want to show Jesus to people. It doesn't matter what I get. It doesn't matter uh, what I receive out of this whole thing. But I just want Jesus to be shown. Who cares what loss I get? Verse 11, But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Verse 12, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. John's telling us why he's writing to us, to those who are young in the faith, to, to the little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you because your sins are forgiven. You don't have to hold on to those things from the past. You don't have to be beat up because Jesus Christ has died and erased all of that from your life. Verse 13, I write to you fathers, you older, because you have known him who's from the beginning. You know God. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. How do you overcome the wicked one? By understanding the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient for your sin and by knowing the Father. And your relationship with the Father then determines your relationship with people. You want to know how to fix your relationship with one another? Spend time with God. Your parallel relationship fixes your horizontal relationships. Verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. Think about this. This is what the Lord has called us to. The word of God to abide, to take residence in us, to determine the way that we live, to guide our very thoughts. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And this is one of those verses that should be plastered all over our walls. 
the love of the world. But wait a second, didn't it just tell us back in verse 2 that Jesus loved the whole world so much that he died for it? Yeah, speaking of two different things. The people in this world we're called to love. We're called to love with all that we have, to sacrifice whatever it takes to show them Jesus Christ. The things of this world, we're supposed to completely abhor, to, to want nothing to do with. We're supposed to not love the things of this world. For anyone who loves the world, the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now think about this. Those three things are the three things that determine that have determined the sin in humanity from the creation, right? From Adam and Eve. Eve lusted with her eyes as she looked upon the fruit. She lusted with her flesh as she desired the taste, which then pushed on the pride of life, wanting to be like God. It's the same stuff that we deal with today. The lust of the eyes, it starts with just a small video on YouTube, so to say, which then becomes the lust of the flesh. And usually what we see come from a sinful life is pride. You see a man walking around in his self-righteousness and his pride, you pretty much always see, oh, there's something going on with that guy. There's some sin in that man's life. And those things are of the world. Verse 17, and the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now think about this. How many of us in this room want to do the will of God? I can tell you that that's something I've said maybe even millions of times since I've become a Christian. I just, Lord, I just want to know your will. Lord, just direct my, I, I just want you to direct my footsteps because I, I don't know what to do next. Just, just let me know your will. How do you do the will of God? By keeping his commandments, loving God with all that you have, by loving your neighbor, your brother and your sister as yourself, and by allowing his word to abide in you, to change you from the inside out. Now, specifically, the will of God, doing the will of God in your life, what's awesome is we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does this amazing thing where he speaks to us. And if we're in constant fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit will say, no, don't do that. Yes, do that. No, don't go there. Yes, go there. We get to have a conversation with God in a way that before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, no one got to have. 
The veil has been torn. We can now go straight to God and speak to him and ask for his leading. God doesn't have to speak through a man to tell you what the will of God is in your life. Now God just says, hey, you, you're seeking me. My word abides in you. You're following after me with all that you have. This is what I want you to do next. Now take this step. Now take this step. I want the whole map. I want to see the whole plan. That's not what he does. He says, hey, take this step next. Go here next. Those who do the will of God abide forever. Verse 18, little children, it is the last hour, which started on a Wednesday, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. Which started in Acts chapter 2, the last hour, right? The, the times of the Gentiles, the beginning of the church, um, the last hour started. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So he's speaking of false teachers here. Let's read again. He says that it's the last hour, right? Verse 18. At the very end, he says that the Antichrist is coming. The specific Antichrist is coming. We'll see that in, in the tribulation, right? And then it says, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. Antichrist, those who try to... Uh, uh, one of two things, because Antichrist actually means those who try to suppose the position of Christ, take the position of Christ. So those who separate from Christ and those who claim to be a Christ are the Antichrist. There are many of them in the world today. Verse 19, and then it says that these Antichrists, that they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they may be made manifest that none of them were of us. Many people, specifically, I, I believe here he's talking about people in the church trying to pull people to themselves, claiming to be something rather than pulling people to Christ. These men go out from the church. They try to do their own thing. It's funny, I experienced this in California. I met a man who made the church about him. It's almost like he wanted to put his name on the church, right? Instead of it being like the church of Jesus, it was like the church of, insert the guy's name. And it was disgusting. It was proud. And guess what? His whole mission was to divide people off of churches and pull people to himself. He wasn't trying to win people for the Lord. He wasn't trying to find unconverted people to to lead them to Jesus. He was trying to grab people from all the, the churches in the valley that we lived and drag them to himself so that he could teach his doctrine. It's a very scary thing. Very dangerous thing. It says that these ones were manifest. They were shown to be not of us by the fact that they tried to, to leave, to divide from the church. 
Now, that's an awesome idea and theory, right? But how does this apply to us? What are we doing in our lives today to draw people to us? What am I doing in my life? What is James doing in his life in order to make people fall in love with James? To build James's kingdom, so to say. Well, that changes everything. Because I do a lot of things that, that I, I, I want people to fall in love with me. I want people to be my friends. I want people to think about me. I, I want people to care about me. That's not our mission. You want to know who my friends are? I was just talking to Will about this last night. My closest friends are men who have given up their old lives, their old way of life to follow Jesus. Men that have a testimony of, I am no longer what I was. I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. You know what I want people to respect me for? That dude loves like Jesus. I may not agree with him on who Jesus is, but he loves like Jesus. I don't mind if, if a non-believer wants to deny the message. That's not between me and them. That's between them and God. But I never want someone to say, hey, you do not represent... Sorry, I didn't mean to point at you, Alan. <laughs> hey, you do not represent Jesus Christ. I never want someone to say that to me or have that thought about me. What I want people to experience when they experience James is, wow, you're showing a love that you don't see nowadays. They went out from us because they were never of us. Verse 20, but you, in distinction to them, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he who denies Jesus is the Christ. Now remember, we started this by talking about Corinthism. Who is a liar? But anyone who denies that Jesus is God incarnate. The Messiah. That is the liar. It's the same message that Satan wants us to believe. That Jesus is not God incarnate. That he is not the Messiah. Continues by saying he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. What does denial of the Son look like? It takes many forms. There are many people on earth that say that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. That's the denial of the Son. And therefore the denial of the Father. There are many on earth today that say that Jesus is the spirit brother of Satan, born to spirit mother and spirit father. That is the denial of the, the son. That's not the same Jesus that the Bible teaches. There are people on earth today that teach that Jesus is not God, that he literally received the spirit of Christ at some point. And there's many uh, uh, well-known teachers, supposed Christian teachers that we see on TVs and on the internet that teach this. It's a scary thing. What's even scarier, scarier is we start seeing teachers that are respected teachers in Christianity aligning themselves with them. They're not of us. They deny the Son 
and therefore they deny the Father. Verse 23, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. If you want to get to the Father, if you want to be a child of God, you must go through Jesus Christ. He who denies Jesus as the Son of God, as God incarnate, does not have the Father. I think the message is pretty clear. I had a conversation with a lady uh, today's Thursday, today's Thursday. Yeah, this morning. I mix up days. So I was taking her to her treatment this morning. And she's Methodist. And she said, hey, I can't remember where you said you were a pastor. She said, were, are you, did you say you're part of the apostolic church? And I said, no, not at all. I'm not apostolic. I, I'm, I go to Calvary Chapel. And she said, well, what do they believe? I said, pretty much what you believe. The difference is church government. But we believe the same thing. She said, well, then why are you so adamant about not being apostolic? I said, they don't believe what we believe. She said, what do, what do they believe? I said, they believe in the fact that uh, Jesus is not God. That Jesus, I'm sorry, they actually believe that Jesus is a mode of God. That he's not part of the Trinity. They believe that that God left heaven and became Jesus. And when Jesus died, he became Holy Spirit. And at any time he wants, he could shift to one of those positions. That's not what we believe. We believe there's three in one, God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, tri-unity, Trinity. She said, oh, I'm glad I know that now. I said, yeah, I'm definitely not apostolic. We need to worship the Son. We need to spend time with the Son. We need to spend time with Jesus. Then we get the Father. Verse 24, let's try to finish. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has promised us, eternal life. Don't change to some different doctrine. Don't switch over. Don't be swayed. In fact, I, I believe it was the Galatian church that Paul said, I can't believe you've been swayed so easily to a, to a different gospel. And then he goes, it wasn't even a different gospel. It was just a perversion of the true gospel. We need to be continuously searching scripture so that we can abide in it so that our relationships can be restored with the father and with each other and through that we're promised eternal life through the death burial resurrection of jesus christ through his grace verse 26 these things i've written to you concerning those who try to deceive you but the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointed teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in him. So, this is a beautiful thing about being a child of God. We have the capability of knowing God personally on our own. As we examine Scripture, as we get to know His Word, He teaches us. He, he restores our mind in a way 
that we know him personally. And then when people try to come in and deceive us, we can say, no, that's not true because I know. If someone were to come to me and say, hey, you know Will Cass? Yeah, I know Will. I know him pretty well. I live in his house. Yeah, that guy with the black beard? Nope. Don't know that Will Cass. The Will Cass I know has a red beard with a white stripe down the middle. Used to be all red. Now it's white. You know the guy that, that has dark black eyes? No, nope, not Will. I know, I know Will. When people come to me and say, hey, you know that Jesus? Yeah, I know Jesus. You know that Jesus that's a, that was a man and took on the, the spirit of Christ? Nope, don't know that one. Never met that guy. You're not going to deceive me because I know him. This is what we're called to. We don't need, we're not going to be deceived and we don't need a teacher, so to say, because we could go to the teacher and speak to him personally. We can know him in a way that, that no one's going to deceive us because we know the person. Verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him that when he appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him in his coming. You want the assurance that you're in him? Abide. It goes back to John chapter 15. Abide in Christ. Cling to him. Like a branch clings to the vine. Allow him to produce fruit through your life. Because then you will not be ashamed. You'll have confidence that is coming. Verse 29. And if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteous righteousness is born of him. That could be confidential. That could be a, a um, that could make you question things. I guess. What is righteousness? I know some Mormons that run around and they're pretty nice guys. They do a whole lot of nice things. There's some guys that that are part of uh, different groups that build hospitals and. Take care of widows and aren't they practicing righteousness? So they know God? No. The righteousness that we've been called to is to love God with all of our hearts, minds, souls, strength, and to love each other as as we love ourselves. You can't do that without Jesus. I had this conversation with my boss not too long ago, talking about how those in the church, true Christians, he's not a Christian, but how I was telling him that true Christians are the only ones that truly give without anything in return, that don't desire anything in return. And he said, well, no, how could you say that? There's a lot of people that give to different charities, different foundations, without, one, without receiving anything. I said, okay, well, let's use the Shriners. They build hospitals, right? I think it's the Shriners. What do they get out of that? They get the fact that, that everyone knows that the Shriners are good people because they build hospitals. They're proud of it. As Christians, we should be giving, not desiring to receive. 
without expectation of receiving. What is righteousness? To abide in Christ. Amen? That's what I have. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that we could approach you, that, that we don't have need for a teacher, yet still bring teachers into our lives, Father. We love you so much. I ask that you do give us a sweet time of fellowship as we continue to worship you by becoming closer and closer to one another. Allow our relationship with you to be reflected on each other tonight. Bless us as we go home. Allow us to be a blessing to our families, to our friends, to our coworkers, to the people that are in our lives around us. Guide us, I ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.